Welcome back to Perkei Avot and the teachings of Yeshua. Perkei Avot is divided up into six chapters. Each chapter is divided up into various Mishnayot, or sayings. A single Mishnah is similar to what we would call a verse. In this video, I'll be going through a few connections between Perkei Avot and the Apostolic Scriptures from one chapter of Perkei Avot. As a reminder, the goal of this study is not to cover every Mishnah of every chapter, but to pull out a few Mishnayot from each chapter and show the connections between Perkei Avot and the Apostolic Scriptures, particularly the teachings of Yeshua. However, if you'd like to read the entire text of Perkei Avot, you can do so using the link below this video. With this in mind, let us begin. Perkei Avot opens with Moses received the Torah from Sinai and transmitted it to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, and the prophets transmitted it to the men of the great assembly. They said three things, be deliberate in judgment, raise up many disciples, and make offense for the Torah. Perkei Avot begins by chronicling the transmission of Torah from its giving at Sinai to the Anshe Knesset Hagodolah, the men of the great assembly in the time of Ezra. This transmission is primarily referring to the Torah Sheba'al Peh, or the Oral Torah, which includes oral interpretations and rulings on matters of Torah. The Mishnah's very first statement is the foundation of both the Torah's authority and the authority of the leaders of Israel. It shows how the authority and interpretations of the Torah have been passed down from its initial revelation at Sinai through subsequent generations. It reminds us that the teachings of the Torah, both written and oral, were preserved through a series of transmissions. It was initially received by Moses and then continually passed down through the ages by means of various teacher-student relationships. In this Mishnah, we read of multiple instances where people were entrusted to learn, teach, and pass down the Torah to the next generation. We hear of an unbroken chain of authority from God's revelation at Sinai until the end of the Babylonian exile. Perkei Avot begins with this Mishnah because it is specifically designed to set the stage for what follows. And as we are introduced to teachers throughout this tractate, we learn of their place within this chain of tradition. We begin with the men of the great assembly. They said three things. Number one, be deliberate in judgment. Sitting in the position of judge is a serious matter. According to Midrash Tanhuma, a judge should always perceive himself as if there was a sword placed between his thighs and Gehenom is open beneath him. It continues by saying, And any judge who does not judge a case with absolute truth causes the divine presence to depart from Israel, as it is stated, because of the plundering of the poor and the outcry of the needy, now I will rise up, etc. Quoting Psalm 12, verse 6. Well, why is this? Because a judge holds sway over people and can determine their course of life. Judging rightly can vindicate the oppressed, but a misjudgment can bring oppression to the innocent. Yeshua advocated for justice as well. Unfortunately, when many people read about the things that Yeshua did to uphold justice, they interpret it to mean he overruled justice. Let's take a brief look at an often misunderstood passage from the Gospel of John. 
Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Yeshua bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Yeshua was left alone with the woman standing before him. Yeshua stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Yeshua said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is John 8, verses 2 through 11. The problem with this passage is that most people either don't know or choose to ignore that the Torah requires not only the adulteress to be stoned, but that her lover be stoned as well. Leviticus 20.10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The second problem with this is that the stoning was never to be done through vigilante justice. Both the man and the woman were to be taken before a court of law and tried. They were either sentenced to stoning or released due to lack of evidence. Another big issue in this was that there had to be two eyewitnesses to testify of the act they were accused of. Yeshua knew this woman's accusers had ignored following any of the Torah's procedures and had simply wanted to try and trap him into bypassing the Torah's system of justice. They wanted to see if he would try and usurp the Torah's authority in the zeal of ignorance. Yeshua caught on to their plan easily and put them to shame with his response, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. We also misunderstand Yeshua's attitude towards judgment from an oft-quoted and frequently misquoted passage from Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 1-5 says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you used it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye? when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In this passage, Yeshua is not saying there's no need for judgment. He's simply saying that before we address a problem with our brother, we first take a deep look at ourselves to see if we have our house in order, so to speak. Yeshua spoke out against hypocrisy more than anything, and he not only addressed it with the Pharisees, but with his own disciples as well. Number two, raise up many disciples. When God created the first humans, he told them be fruitful and multiply. After the training of Yeshua's disciples was complete, he told them essentially the same thing. In what we call the Great Commission, Yeshua tasks his disciples with producing spiritual offspring and multiplying themselves. He said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Well, why did he do this? Because this was a responsibility of a disciple to his rabbi. The men of the great assembly commissioned their disciples to replicate and their instructions have been passed down from generation to generation. Each generation has faithfully raised up disciples for their rabbis. Unfortunately, the followers of Yeshua haven't done such a great job of this. We've got a lot of people to join the club, but we haven't produced many disciples. We need to do a much better job of this. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, then be sure to check out my book, The Four Responsibilities of a Disciple. Number three, make offense for the Torah. This is where many followers of Yeshua might think that Yeshua taught against this principle. However, Matthew 5 records a plethora of examples of Yeshua doing this exact thing. But in order to see these things, we have to understand what it means to make offense for the Torah. The principle of building a fence around Torah is based on Leviticus 18.30, which states, You shall safeguard my charge. The children of Israel were to guard themselves against falling into the lure of sin. Lest they become negligent in their observance, they set in place certain regulations to ensure that a person wouldn't inadvertently violate the Lord's commandments. How can we understand this? To what can the matter be compared? It can be compared to a father who wanted to keep his young son from falling into the ravine behind his house. What did he do? He built a sturdy fence back away from the edge of the slope to protect his son from wandering too near the edge and sliding down and injuring himself. Did the father intend to squash the boy's freedom or to protect him from harm? Surely it was to safeguard the child from potential injury. The same is true with a fence built properly around the Torah. Over the ages, Christianity has established fences for its adherents for similar reasons. Depending on the stringency of the denomination, these regulations range from prohibitions against alcohol and tobacco to restrictions on watching movies, dancing, or even wearing makeup. The logic works like this. The Bible warns against the dangers of drunkenness. Alcohol causes drunkenness. Therefore, ban alcohol. It's the same argument at which the anti-gun laws are aimed. We shouldn't be killing people. Guns kill people, therefore ban guns. But each of these is based on the fallacy of man's wisdom. The fences around Torah aren't intended to completely negate those things that the Bible permits. As I mentioned earlier, they are designed to keep people from stumbling into a pit. Yeshua establishes the fence around Torah for his disciples in Matthew 5, 22 and 23 by telling them to flee from anger because when a person is angry, he has no sense of self-control and anger is the seed that if watered could produce the fruit of murder. Then in verses 27 and 28, he tells his disciples to establish a fence on the path that leads to lust in order to keep himself free from the sin of adultery. And then again in verses 33 through 37, he establishes a fence for making rash promises in order to keep his disciples from violating the Torah's prohibition of breaking one's oaths or vows. Yeshua clearly made these fences because he valued the Torah and wanted his disciples to stay far from the edges of the proverbial cliff of sin. Mishnah number two. Shimon the righteous was of the remnants of the great assembly. He used to say, 
on three things the world stands, on the Torah, on service, and on deeds of loving kindness. On the Torah. In Jewish thought, the Torah is the instrument God used to create the world, and in fact, the very fabric which holds this world together. This concept was developed through a close examination of Scripture, which began in Proverbs 8. This chapter is known as the Wisdom Chapter because in it, wisdom is personified and calls out to all who would hear her voice. Verses 22 through 30 of this chapter speak of wisdom being present at creation, acting as a master craftsman in the work of creation. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. This is Proverbs 8, 22, 27, and 30. Jewish tradition identifies Torah as the wisdom spoken about in this passage. Therefore, Torah, the wisdom and will of God for mankind, is the primary foundation for the world's existence. It is the first leg of the three-legged table upon which the world rests. As Yeshua said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the Torah until all is accomplished. And if we believe in the perpetual nature of the Holy Torah, we should be allowing it to inform our daily decisions. We should be asking ourselves, What does the Torah say about my marriage? What does the Torah say about my family? What does the Torah say about my job, my finances, my relationships, etc.? The Torah should be at the heart of everything that we do. It is the bedrock upon which the rest of the scriptures are built and the foundation of what we believe as followers of Yeshua. Therefore, it must become the soul of who we are as followers of this Jewish Messiah, the Torah made flesh in our day-to-day -day lives. The Torah is not only a leg that must remain intact for the support of the world, but one on which requires our engagement with it. The preacher in Ecclesiastes admonishes us regarding the end of all matters, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The Torah, its wisdom and application encapsulates the duty of man. The word avodah literally means service. In Shimon Hatzadik's comment, he merely lists ha'avodah, the service, without any explanation as to what kind of service he's referring to. But he was the Kohen Gadol, the high priest of his generation. The service he spoke of was the service that took place within the Holy House. After the children of Israel were delivered from the hand of Pharaoh, God gave them his Torah. A large part of the Torah was instructions on how to build his holy house and how to perform the service that would take place within it. Every day a lamb was offered in the morning and another in the evening. These were the continual offerings God required of his people every single day of the year. After the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the holy temple at the hands of the Romans, however, the children of Israel couldn't bring these offerings that God desired. They were left with a problem. Without a temple, and therefore being without the divine service which took place within it, they immediately sought a means by which the avodah could be continued without the temple. The rabbis posed the question, What does it mean to serve God with all your heart? Deuteronomy 6.5 They responded by saying, Just as the worship at the temple altar is called avodah, so is prayer called avodah, 
That is the service of the heart. This is from Tractate Ta'anit 2a of the Talmud. This was based on the words of Hosea 14.3, which says, So we will render for bulls the fruit of our lips. As we can see, after the destruction of the temple, avodah naturally took on the broader meaning of prayer. The sages emphasized that prayer was indeed equivalent to the avodah of the temple. The author of the book of Hebrews makes this same point to followers of Yeshua who had been banned from participating in temple worship in the years following Yeshua's resurrection. He commissions us, Through him, speaking of Yeshua, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. In Hebrew, the word bull and fruit are spelled identically. And Hosea uses this play on words to make his point. Let the fruit of my lips, in other words, prayer, be as a substitute and considered as worthy as if I had offered you bulls. In other words, whole burnt offerings. Both the author of Hebrews and the rabbis after the destruction of the Holy Temple reminded their audience that although they were being excluded from participation in the temple services, they still had a service they could render to God, that of sincere prayer. It is the second leg of the tripod upon which the world stands. On Gimilut Hasidim. Gimilut Hasidim, literally acts of kindness or bestowal of kindnesses, is the third leg of this proverbial tripod upon which the world rests. Gimilut Hasidim is equivalent to the Torah's instruction, love your neighbor. When the end of Jacob's life draws near, he calls Joseph to his side and makes a request from him. He begins his request by saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly chesed ve'emet with me. From this passage, Judaism understands the noblest concept of Gimelu Hasidim to be caring for the deceased. Rashi, pulling from Genesis Rabbah, comments, saying, Kindness that people do for the dead is kindness of truth. In other words, chesed ve'emet, genuine kindness, because one does not look forward to reciprocation. In other words, by serving the deceased, we serve someone who is not able to repay our deeds of kindness. Yeshua's resurrecting the dead was a kindness beyond what any could have expected. Acts of Gimelut Hasidim are also without limit. Each morning we read from the Siddur a passage from the Mishnah which reminds us of this truth. The following are the things for which there is no limitation. The corners of the field, first fruits, the offerings brought on appearing before the Lord at the three pilgrim festivals, the practice of loving kindness, and the study of Torah. This is from Mishnah Peah 1.1. Whereas there are limits to many of the mitzvot, there is no limit to the amount of kindness a person may bestow. Neither are there any restrictions on kindness. The Apostle Paul says something similar when he reminds us that the fruit of the Spirit, which is demonstrated towards others, is also without restriction. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. 
Gimilur Hasidim is the final leg that must remain intact for the support of the world, but can only be realized when we act as the hands and feet of our Messiah. For this reason, followers of Yeshua should adopt the philosophy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. If the exile was brought about through unfounded hatred, we will bring the redemption through unbounded love. Disciples of Yeshua should be making the world a more kind place, a more loving place, and a more caring place. The only way it will happen is through our actions rather than our beliefs. The world stands on three things, Torah study, prayer, and acts of kindness to others. Mishnah number three, Antigonos of Soho received the tradition from Shimon Hatzadik. He would say, do not be as servants who serve their master for the sake of reward. Rather, be as servants who serve their master not for the sake of reward, and the fear of heaven should be upon you. What does it mean to not be as servants who serve their master for the sake of reward? So this is really the only aspect of this I want to focus on this particular Mishnah. I want to ask you a question. Why do you serve God? What is your motivation? That may seem like an odd question, but it's one that we need to internalize and honestly address. There's a well-known story about the Baal Shem Tov in which he blessed a couple so that they would be able to conceive a child and claimed that they would be holding their child before the year was over. It is said that a bathol, a heavenly voice, immediately proclaimed that the Baal Shem Tov would forfeit his portion in the world to come because of his chutzpah, his bold tenacity in this statement. After hearing the heavenly proclamation, the Baal Shem Tov became elated with joy. When asked why he was so happy rather than distressed, he replied, all my life I've been troubled by the thought that perhaps my service of the Almighty was tainted by the expectation of reward. Now, however, my service of God will be pure, free from the possibility of any ulterior motive. Although this may sound strange at first, the Apostle Paul said something very similar. Expressing his desire that the entire nation of Israel would come to know Yeshua as the Messiah, he said, For I could wish that myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. This is Romans 9.3. He was willing that his portion in Messiah be forfeited so that others could come to know him. Yeshua offered a similar teaching to that of Antigonos of Soho when he said, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is Luke 17, 7 through 10. Our service of the Holy One should not be based on whether or not we will receive a reward. It should be based on love. Mishnah number four. Yosef ben Yoezra of Tzeradia and Yosef ben Yochanan of Yerushalayim received the Torah from them. Yosef ben Yoezer of Tzeradia said, Let your house be a meeting house for the sages, and sit amid the dust of their feet, and drink in their words with thirst. Let's talk about what it means to let your house be a meeting house for the sages. 
In the days of the master, gathering in homes for religious purposes was as important as meeting in the synagogues. We have examples of this from the book of Acts, which records brief insights into the communal life of the earliest believers in Yeshua. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching. The early followers of Yeshua eagerly opened their homes to the apostles so that they could learn more about Yeshua and his teachings. Why shouldn't modern disciples of Yeshua follow this example by inviting people into their homes to be taught the ways of our Master? Another way we can fulfill the mitzvah of having our homes be a meeting house for the sages today is that our homes should be filled with books containing the teachings of the sages throughout the ages. But we should also have a collection of resources from Messianic teachers who have been pioneers in reconnecting the apostolic scriptures to their foundations in the Torah, framing them within the proper Jewish context. Owning a worthy collection of study resources allows us opportunities to be actively engaged in the study of scripture, either alone or with others. We can easily open our homes for the study of Scripture, learning the teachings and interpretations of our sages, our Messiah, our apostles, and the Messianic pioneers of our faith. What does it mean to sit in the dust of your rabbi's feet? If we were to translate this part of the Mishnah literally, it would read something like to wallow in the dust of their feet or to powder yourself with the dust of their feet. This phrase not only carries the connotation of soaking up the essence or character of one's teacher, but it is also connected to someone who has become dusty due to wrestling. Not only should we be covered in the dust of our teachers, but we should also wrestle with the teaching we receive. Once we have studied and learned, we should be able to question our teachers in order to fully understand our lessons. A disciple should not be content to passively absorb the lessons of his teacher. He should wrestle through them until he fully understands them. He must wrestle with his teacher's wisdom until he has internalized them. Yeshua also connects dust to association or soaking up the character of others. When sending out his disciples, he tells them to shake off the dust from your feet if they are not received by a home or a town. They should not even have the dust of those inhospitable people attached to them. In this mission, we are told that we should drink in the words of the sages with thirst. What is so important about learning from the sages that their teachings are compared to water on parched souls? When a person is already satiated, offering them a glass of water will not produce the response of enthusiasm. However, when a parched person is offered the same, they will receive it with gusto and will savor every last drop. We live in a generation that doesn't know how thirsty we are, both literally and figuratively. Rather than being satiated by pure water with all of its healing properties, our thirst is constantly being quenched with artificial beverages that only make us more and more needy of true refreshment. We live in a time when the satisfaction of these artificial thirst quenchers seem to taste better than the real thing, and therefore they have created these cravings within us. The same is true in regard to spiritual satiation. The prophet Amos warned the children of Israel about this problem in his generation. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Amos 8.11 Unfortunately, we live in a day very similar to the time of this prophecy. 
Most people want God's blessing, but we do not invest any time or energy into drawing near to Him. Many in our generation have never tasted spiritual nourishment, and therefore they attempt to satisfy the hunger of their souls with worldly distractions. The scriptures sit on our shelves gathering dust, while the latest movies, television shows, and video games receive ample attention, the details of which are being etched into our brains. Yeshua taught his disciples, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In this life, we must hunger and thirst for the righteous teachings of the Torah and their application. Learning from godly Torah scholars is one way to drink in the living words of Torah. But even more important than drinking in the words of the sages with thirst, we must do so with the words of our master, Yeshua. Yeshua said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. John 7:37. Why? Peter said it best when he told Yeshua, You have the words of eternal life. Mishnah number 12. Hillel would say, Be of the disciples of Aaron, a lover of peace, a pursuer of peace, one who loves the creatures and draws them close to Torah. Our current Mishnah views Aaron as the model peacemaker. He is a lover of peace, a pursuer of peace. But why Aaron? Well, Psalm 133 verses 1 and 2 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. The work Avot de Rebinatan tells of the method by which Aaron made peace between a man and his brother. When he would hear that two friends were at odds with one another, he would seek one of them out and then tell him how his friend felt so bad that he had quarreled and wanted to apologize, but he was too embarrassed to face him. He would sit and speak with the man until all bitterness left his heart. He would then go to the other man and repeat this exact same process until the other man was free of bitterness as well. And then, when the two would see each other out in public, they would embrace one another and weep together as friends united. According to this text, Aaron knew how to make peace between one man and another and went to extreme measures to do so. In the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua challenges his disciples in many areas of life. In this, his longest recorded sermon, he reveals the will of the Father in relation to how the principles of Torah should be lived out. This lengthy teaching begins with what has been labeled as the Beatitudes. They are short, pithy sayings in which the Master praises a particular character trait or behavior and associates it with a reward or gives the result of such action. Many of the statements and maxims that follow in Yeshua's famous Sermon on the Mount are related to interpersonal relationships. Yeshua teaches his disciples, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew 5, 9. He sees the role of peacemakers as being so critical that they are endeared as sons of God. Most people tend to think of peacemakers in terms of pacifism. Therefore, a peacemaker is one who walks away from a quarrel or fight, or who closes his mouth rather than opening it. But is this the most accurate definition of a peacemaker? How are we to properly understand Yeshua's expectation of his disciples being peacemakers? 
What did he have in mind when he spoke these words? Well, first, he probably had in mind that a peacemaker was one who was not merely avoiding conflict, but actively pursuing this thing called peace. The second is related to the whole person. If you want to ask someone how they were doing in Hebrew, you ask mashlamcha if they're male, or mashlamech if they're female. You're literally asking, how is your peace? Yeshua was definitely concerned about peace between one person and another, but he was even more concerned about the peace of the individual. His goal was to take broken people and put them back together. He longed to see people made whole again. We should not only be disciples of Aaron in restoring peace between a man and his fellow, but we should also work to restore broken individuals like our master did, to truly love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, this wraps up our first session of Perkei Avot and the teachings of Yeshua. I hope you found something valuable and applicable in the lesson. Be sure to look out for Lesson 2 in about a week. Blessings. We'll see you next time.